podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Welcome along another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast and I'm James and alongside me today Andy Nash, the former Somerset chairman, ECB director, businessman, vocal opponent of the 100 and we've got quite a bit in common I think Andy over the last uh, few years in terms of the Twitter sphere trying to uh, get our points across. I was just saying to you before we press record there, the cricket world in a way has got a little bit of Brexity hasn't it in terms of uh, people supporting the 100, trying to say people that are against it are sticking the muds and uh, not progressive and people who can see a, a danger to uh, county cricket. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. And uh, yes, as we were saying briefly a few moments ago, I think it's it's reflective of Twitter and social media generally, isn't it? The uh, debates all too often descend into the personal, and the irrational uh, and the outright rude uh, which is, is is not the way it should be. So I do my utmost to uh, remain polite at all times, no matter how strongly I may feel on uh, on certain issues with regard to cricket. And I, I think it's important as well, isn't it, to just recognise the fact that despite whatever your views are, generally speaking, most people just love cricket and want to see it move in the right direction. It's just other people have maybe slightly different opinions on what that direction should be. Yeah, and you want to have passion, don't you? Uh, as well, because that's a vital ingredient of any sport. And uh, with a professional sport, it gets magnified. So that's a really important uh, ingredient. And also, of course, in, in cricket, like many, so many things, very few issues are binary. I, it's, not, it's not maths, is it? There's no right and wrong quite often. No. You've got to be able to think around corners uh, and look over the horizon sometimes to try and spot uh, how things might play out. And people aren't very good these days of uh, kind of assessing the shades of grey in the in the middle of the two binary positions, are they? I, I've noticed, Andy, I, I, mean, I don't know if you've felt the same this season, but it seemed to me when the 100 was introduced, there seemed to, the conversation in cricket seemed to be around of, do we need this new competition? I get the sense this season that the conversation has kind of flipped a little bit and it's now... The assumption seems to be that the 100's here to stay and can the blast now live alongside the 100? And the, the dynamic has flipped 180 degrees and we're now trying to justify whether the blast has a future rather than whether the 100 should be here. Well, I think certainly the whether the... Uh, there are many issues, aren't there, wrapped up in that. I mean, firstly, the 100, does it have a future outside of England? Um, although this is only its second live season, it's actually been around for five years. And uh, during that time, you would have thought the administrators of ECB will have been doing their utmost to sell it to other countries. But five years on, season 22, no one is showing any inclination of picking it up. So, I mean, that's one 
big issue. Just just before you continue that, because there's something I've always thought here that you know one of the biggest reasons for the ECB to bring the hundred in was because they missed the boat a little bit on the T20. They were talking to uh, Alan Stanford in the in the Caribbean trying to get his millions into the game, and that all fell flat on its face. And by that time, the IPL had um, really taken root. In terms of actually trying to sell the hundred to other countries and actually have that as a copyrighted, trademarked kind of thing you can make money from, what's to stop? somebody in Abu Dhabi creating the 99 or anything else, you know, the, it's just a hundred balls, isn't it? What, what, you can have your own version of that and just tinker with it and make it slightly different, surely. Well, you, we've got the T10, of course, haven't we, which has been playing in the uh, in parts of the Emirates. Look, I think one of the things that is uh, unique about cricket almost, almost everywhere it's played uh, is that it's a relatively short season. And, you know, you, can, you run straight into the issue of is there room for a fourth competition? And probably, with almost no exceptions, the answer is going to be no, there isn't. <laughs> and uh, I remember talking to some of the Safis playing for Somerset, guys like Char Willoughby, and asking him, you know, how is it that, you know, the, 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 in South Africa you're turning out so many outstanding cricketers uh, for the, uh, the size of the population? And his answer was very memorable. He said, well, it's dead easy. He said, we play it for two terms mm. at school not just one. And there you go. So they're playing twice as much. And uh, it shows, doesn't it? But with the exception of probably of the Safis, most of the rest of the, of the major com- countries with an ICC have a smaller window. Very, very difficult to see how you can squeeze four competitions in. And I think that whilst you know there are very few black and white situations, I very obviously, uh, yes or no in cricket, it's pretty difficult to sustain the argument that the English season can cope with four competitions. We've seen the, um, I'm not sure we'll go into it later, but the entire rhythm or drumbeat of the English season for the fans has long since disappeared. You know, we've yeah. now got the T20 being pierced by the, by the county championship. The county championship is being thrown around like a rag doll at the beginning and the end of the, it's the bookend of the, of the season. And, you know, one, one can go on, but uh, I'm with Owen Morgan on this. I mean, he said determinedly, uh, I think it was last year, you know, that uh, we can't, we, we can't coexist with two short form competitions. One will have to give way. And uh, I'm quite certain that they are as certain as I can be. The T20 and the hundred are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. Which one's going to win then? Well, the, uh, no easy answer to that one because in the, in the red corner, uh, you've got the, the counties and T20. And uh, I'm quite certain, and I'm sure other county chairs, were, uh, both uh, retired like me or, or current, would bear this out. A county can't sustain itself financially. It doesn't have a sustainable business plan without the T20 uh, in 2022 or going forwards. It's crucial. But in the blue corner, you've got ECB, uh, who are determined to uh, uh, persist with the 100, not because the 100 per se uh, is a brilliant format, uh, although not that there's anything wrong with it as a cricketing uh, spectacle. The fact is what they must have is their eight franchises, because those are the brands that appear in their annual report and accounts. And they're there for a reason. They want to add value to those, uh, monetize them. And, of course, it's something that they can control. And uh, you've always had a situation at ECB, which is, is, is always a, you know, it's a galleon permanently on, on the verge of mutiny. Uh, and it's always been that way. Uh, and it, and it, between the, uh, the counties on the one hand and EC, ECB on the other. Hitherto, they've tended to uh, coexist 
reasonably happily. But obviously, in recent years, that's become far, far, you know, since I left, it's become far, far more difficult. That's apparent. And uh, I would say at the moment, what I'm hearing is the relations between the administrators on both sides are probably at an historic low at the moment. And that's because of some of the issues I'm sure that we will come on to. One of the things with 18 counties, I, I'm never made a secret of that. I love having 18 counties. They're all vastly different. They all offer something. They've all achieved something in the game. They've all provided something for England. They all have their own histories and things to be proud of. But one of the things with 18 counties, Andy, is that because of the geography and uh, of this country, they all have slightly different needs and desires and things that they would want to see in an ideal world. A Leicestershire's needs and desires are probably different to a Surrey's needs and desires, aren't they? Of course. Yeah, totally. And we used to say at ECB that we've got 18 counties and about 23 different strategies being played out in the game. <laughs> they, uh, they are all very different. And of course, they wax and they wane, don't they? Uh, and even, you know, my own county, which has been now far and away the longest serving in, in Division One of the county championship, you know, has had a, uh, a, a terrible start until the last couple of games. I think that those difficulties that the counties periodically have, uh, you know, are the salt that gives the game its uh, gives the game its flavour, and that takes us on to probably, you know, there is a a point of view that the eighteen is too many and they should be shrunk, and I know that is uh, fiercely opposed by many, and it would be opposed by people like my, you know, myself, and I suspect you too, James. I think on that, Andy. Yeah, there is no magic number. We've got 18. Probably, as has been said many times before, if we started from scratch, 18 possibly wouldn't be the number that we, we went with. But what I want to see is those 18 counties. You know, if, if one of them does die because they're not run properly or because they just can't achieve what, what is required by cricket, that's a different matter of uh, different thing. But I want to see those 18 counties having the same kind of opportunities and the same kind of chances because a fan in Leicestershire is just as valuable as a fan in Surrey or Yorkshire or anywhere else. Not to mention, of course, the players' pathway. And again, mm -hmm. take the southwest, the region I'm most uh, familiar with. Somerset has been recruiting boys and girls from all over the southwest peninsula now for, for many, many years. If you know the county furthest west ever happened to be Gloucester, for the sake of argument, you know, if you were living in western Cornwall, or uh, Western Devon or Cornwall or South Devon, you, you know, it would be a uh, huge journey to get up to the uh, up to Bristol. If we did get the eight hubs, I mean, two of them are in London, so it's seven hubs, really, seven cities that the 100 model is based on. I know there would be an under underclass of cricket, for want of a better phrase. You know, we've seen Durham produce some terrific players, Somerset produce some mm. terrific players. Yeah. You're asking them, I mean... Say a Mark Wood is young now, 12 years old or something like that, and he's thinking about his future. And the nearest proper centre of cricket or, you know, glamorous centre of cricket is, is Leeds. He's going to think twice, isn't he, about maybe pursuing the game? Because, you know, you're taking something which at the moment, I mean, we kind of bemoan the fact that are there enough opportunities and are we getting enough people into the game? If we actually reduce the um, centres of cricket, we are making it actually harder for people, aren't we? Of course we are. And uh, take the Overton twins from uh, Instow in North Devon. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for Somerset, do we really think, I mean, they're both great athletes. Do we really think they would have travelled to Southampton or Cardiff? They've got very long legs. It's only about five steps left for them. <laughs> Probably not. And uh, look, it doesn't require a great leap of imagination, does it, to buy into the school of thought that says if you shrink the game back to eight urban hubs, 
there's only going to be one major outcome out of that, and that is that the playing pool and, and the game will shrink. Of course it will. Badges are furry creatures. 85% of women badges think bad grooming is a major turn-off. 80% of women badges think men should trim below the belt. 89% of men think good grooming is essential to the professional success. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Get on there, manscaped.com. Check out their great range of male grooming accessories. Hygiene, appearance, attractiveness, confidence. Simply go to manscaped.com, quote the discount code BADGER. You get 20% off, you get free shipping, and you get some seriously quality equipment. Manscaped.com, together we save balls. Just going right back to the start, when the hundreds, um, I mean, we don't have to go back that far, but when the hundred was first muted and first talked about in ECB HQ, you were an ECB director, then chairman of Somerset at the time. The questions, I mean, we've had quite a few questions on Twitter, and it's probably worth starting with this one. How many times as an ECB board member and Somerset chair did you vote in favour of the hundred or a city-based T20 competition when it was first proposed? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, that's never from Danny, voted, by the way. Thank you, Danny. Uh, never voted in favour of the 100 because that didn't exist. I, I stepped down at the end of March in 2018. and I think the 100 was memorably sprung on the county chairs uh, during that summer. Uh, Richard Gould, the, at the time the CEO at uh, Surrey, described it very memorably. They were sat down. Uh, they were agog. Uh, when, they, when the 100 was explained, he likened it, I think, to a scene out of is it W1A. The, uh, but, uh, but the press release had already been sent out, so they were hardly consulted. That, was a, a, that really was a fait accompli. Back in 2017, the ECB asked a meeting of the county chairs for a show of hands. Uh, it wasn't a vote, a show of hands in terms of those who'd be prepared to explore, explore, um, what a, a new T20 competition might look like. No more than that. So uh, I took the view, it was chairman and, and CEOs there at the time, that it would have been, since the chairman at the time had made it plain he was going to resign if that, if that show of hands wasn't in favour, um, I felt the lesser of two evils was to explore the, uh, explore the, the, uh, uh, the potential. And of course, it, it was explored. But in those days, it was all it was going to involve uh, all eighteen counties equally. And of course, over time, it morphed into something that uh, was it became very apparent it was going to favour eight urban centres. And I think by the time we got to that stage, then the uh, um, other factors were at play. Uh, the one point three million per annum, for example, which many counties couldn't afford to say no to. And uh, the game, I think, through a combination of deliberate steps and missteps just drifted towards uh, where we are today. And finally, clearly, someone at ECB felt or realised we can't run two T20 competitions. Uh, the TV deal, you may recall, had been sold with a new T20 competition within it. There were no details. It switched to the 100 long after the, the, the ink had dried on the new media deal. And then at the 100 progressively, you know, was skewed towards just eight urban centres. So it's quite a long answer, Danny, but uh, there's a lot of history involved in that. I hadn't actually realised it was just a, a a vote of interest rather than a vote of commitment. But often people on the other side of the fence 
to our our position really because I think we're quite similar in the way we think about cricket at the moment accuse the likes of us of being a stick in the muds and and traditionalists and all of these kind of I mean there's nothing wrong with being that but um, they're almost used as insults these these things and I've I've never been opposed to change I mean when we were first starting to talk about this I actually suggested maybe England should have a T10 league involving all 18 counties and make it a hit and giggle for three weeks at the end of a season and and have three games at the same ground on the same day or something like that just to make it different yeah. and be the first country to at the time to really adopt a t10 approach to that for me it's never been about staying the same or not evolving and not making cricket better i, I actually quite you know admire the the first meetings at the ecb of you know we need to do something to attract new audience and all that nothing wrong with that at all it's just the way it's been done a little bit, I think. Um, when that um, announcement was made for the the hundred, I think a lot of people tweeted or said at the time, "Is, is this an April Fool?" Yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. But like, look, I think dinosaurs sticking the muds. I mean, these are puerile comments and they're at variance with the facts. The plain facts are, cricket has innovated over the years far more than rugby union and uh, football. It's two principal cousins. Look at the innovation that's gone through cricket with initially the establishment of the ODIs, um, limited overs cricket, different formats were tried. 20 years ago now, T20 came along. We've had changes in the divisions in the first class game. I mean, cricket has been almost dizzy with change compared to what uh, soccer and rugby union have, uh, have, have experienced. So I think the stigma is a, is a nonsense comment. I think sometimes, Andy, the cricket has actually changed too often yeah. rather than actually let the landscape settle down so people can get, actually get to understand it and, and work out what's going on from year to year very often, well, very rarely has cricket stayed the same and maybe that's its problem rather than too much change. I agree with that. And I think, you know, a questions that have been asked and I think the game is still waiting for the answers is where is the justification for the 100? Um, what's it trying to do? Because you'll recall, I'm sure, like most cricket fans, initially it was for a brand new audience. Mm. What happened? That segue very quickly, once they realised there wasn't one, or they weren't going to attract one, it very quickly segued into, well, we better try and increase the tent to include the current loyalists of the game. And where, of course, the response has been well, you know, what it's been. So you know, we're still waiting for that. And even now, if you look at the uh, I was looking at it earlier on in, pre- in preparation for our chat today, the ECB's latest report and account still talks now talks about a huge increase in numbers within the game and based on participation, fans, players, followers, etc., well, I mean, this is the brand new language because the when the government, th- through the um, Sport England, are measuring the size of sport, they talk about participation, i.e. players. Mm. Um, now, within that, uh, I, you know, I looked up the numbers very recently. Cricket now isn't in the top 15. Uh, you know, it's behind rowing. It, it's behind, you know, so there is, um, and therefore it raises the question, why are we suddenly seeing ECB moving the goalposts now and talking about not just participation, which is what where originally they were for the hundred, now into in total who's involved in cricket? You know the goalposts have been moved, and it's you know those of us who are observing the game, and I'm sure you've seen it too, have uh, have spotted it. Don't want to get it down the politics route, but obviously that's uh, being discussed massively at the moment in terms of how various people are kind of 
presenting Boris Johnson or attacking Boris Johnson. You, you can make people look good or bad, can't you, depending on how, how you frame yeah. the argument. And they're, they're doing that with cricket, I think, to some degree. I mean, they're doing it with stealth, but they're doing it rather obviously for, for those that are paying attention, I think. If, uh, if you're actually watching yeah. the landscape, it is changing. As I said right at the start, it's changing. You are listening to the Cricket Badger Podcast. Moving on to franchise cricket, and obviously the 100 is a franchise, although I think technically it's actually not just yet, um, but it's billed as a franchise thing. We've, we've heard Kevin Peterson come out and saying that we, uh, we, we need to franchise the county championship now. That's the way forward, get the best playing the best, let's reduce the sides um, and um, have probably to imitate the 100, have eight first-class sides playing each other at the very top deck. I don't think a... KP really understands what franchise means and who's going to invest in the county championship because it doesn't really make any money on a base level, does it? But I can see so many arguments against that and not many arguments for that. Put me right, Andy. Well, he's, I mean, he's entitled to his opinion. Of course he is. But if you, I come at this from being, you know, from a businessman stroke administrator's point of view, where is the evidence that franchises work here in the England and Wales? All of the evidence is to the contrary. Now, if you look at what's happened in Welsh Rugby Union, the move to franchises has been an unmitigated disaster, uh, which has been very uh, eloquently written up in the last month, not just by uh, Stuart Barnes, who certainly knows what he's talking about as far as the oval ball is concerned, but Steve James, yeah. who understands both the oval ball and cricket only too well. There they are now having, because they've lost the fan base, the game is having to shrink back down to just three franchises. And you ask them about, you know, we can, re- I'm old enough to remember you're not, you know, the days when Leslie beat the All Blacks, when Cardiff were a real power in club rugby, as were the likes of Pontypool uh, and Swansea. Those clubs have, have now a pale, pale imitations of their former selves. And so, you know, in England and Wales, all of the evidence is that, that, that there aren't any successful franchises in mainstream sport. And, you know, the Welsh rugby is the closest example. So we come back to where is the evidence that franchises are going to work? Because if you are going to euthanize the counties, which have a, you know, go back some of them to the uh, 1850s, you can have a bonfire of of that and a bonfire of the championship that's been around since 1890. Uh, You can destroy it probably in a few years if you really set out to do so. But is that really what cricket lawless would want to see and is that really what the national governing body are there to do rhetorical um, go go back to the question and um rummel raman's been in touch he says do you think people play the man and not the ball when it comes to kp and i think there's any um there's any mileage in that i think with kp when he talks about batting there's nobody better to listen to but sometimes on other stuff i don't tend to agree but when kp did reply on twitter to a few people that were going against him on social media and he said don't reply using the words like money loyalty tradition or history those things are the important things aren't they i mean how can you make an <laughs> argument without those things because loyalty and tradition and history that's what this game is built on and loyalty of supporters that has been possibly even in some families handed down via generations because you know and even young kids now looking back in the history books and looking at jeffrey boycott's achievements with yorkshire or going back into the 50s and 60s with yorkshire using my team they're important foundations to where we are now aren't they in england and wales they are the absolute foundations of uh, of sport aren't they uh i mean we all grew up we all remember where we were we spent our childhoods and uh as we grew up you inevitably 
tended to follow your local uh, football team, probably first and foremost, then the nearest cricket county, uh, rugby union in, in many areas, rugby league up north. And often it's the team that your dad or your granddad or your, your granddad's dad used to yeah. follow. And we did the same with our with the, the town's local beers, too, did we not? Uh, I remember in Wiltshire, you know, being a devotee to Arkell's beer. And, you know, that, that remains there. So that's the way we're made. And we are tribal. And, and they all provide you with headaches the day after, don't they? They do. Yeah. <laughs> true. That's a vital ingredient of English and Welsh sport. Absolutely vital. And you cannot microwave that loyalty. And that's why people, you know, still follow Swindon Town, despite the fact they've only won one trophy of any note in God knows how many decades. But that is the same with most of the 96, isn't it, football league clubs. There's only a tiny handful that, you know, recurrently win major trophies. But it doesn't stop millions of people supporting and caring about those other teams. And um, it's, you know, it's in our bone marrow. And the counties are in people's bone marrows. And that's why... Being positive, you look at the uh, the followership that's now coming through on streaming. Well, guess what? The minute you make cricket available, out, take it out from behind the paywall and stick its head above the parapet, yeah, you'll see 9 million watching it on Channel 4. And well, let's you'll, just, you'll, let's and you'll see these enormous figures on social media. There's been a question about the, the streaming, and Merv Donald actually said, I paraphrase his question there because it's quite a long one, but he's effectively asking, can the counties monetize the streams to provide much-needed revenues? Because certainly on the championship, the major problem with the championship, it's played over four days during the day when a lot of people yeah. that would like to watch it are at work, but the streams give people an in, don't they? And they're great. They're getting better all the time. Well, look, people now follow everything, whether it's sport, news, education, uh, even even if you're working in an office type environment, as very many people do, and even if you're working on you know on factory floors uh, yeah. in the UK, people now follow those interests in a very very different uh, and a great variety of ways. The smartphone uh, has changed the way you know consumers work, all of us, and I think the media you know is adapting towards that. And I would think cricket is in the early phases of understanding uh, how it can market itself on social media. The numbers that are being achieved on in terms of Facebook followership uh, and numbers watching the, the live streams on YouTube provide reason for great optimism. Uh, and you can see the reality, even a county like Somerset, it's being followed all over the world by people logging, logging in. And, um, you know, this is a fantastic source of, of strength. And uh, as you intimated earlier, all of those counties are going to have their diaspora uh, spread all over the place. And uh, no, very, very few are able to watch. And the numbers bear it out through the, through the sky paywall. But if you were able to put a match of the day type format, uh, one that, you know, dear old Dan Whiting has been banging on about for, for quite a while. And I hope he goes on banging on about it. You're going to get... You know, it it could be transformational in terms of the followership that the count, the counties have. When I was the media manager at Yorkshire and managing the website there, the amount of people interested in cricket from all over the world it was incredible. You know, one of the biggest stats was from America because you you forget, I think, in cricket terms that America is maybe not synonymous with cricket, but you got so many expats in some of these places who are proud Yorkshiremen, proud Somerset people who just want to stay in touch with their counties and they'll still of buy course. shirts and they can still be uh, be part of uh, what's going on. You often hear people, Andy, talk about 
the structure of English cricket and compare it to India, compare it to Australia. Um, the geography, um, demographics, the competing interests, the history of those nations, I think often makes that a very futile comparison because you that it's not like for like, is it? Well, again, like so many things in in sport, uh, one of the things that the administrators do, should defer to is, you know, go back to the facts to buttress an argument. And in the case of Australia, uh, I mean, we're polar opposites. In Australia, 75% of their population live in five conurbations. The top five conurbations in the UK are 25% of our population. So, uh, you know, that is a staggering statistic. Yeah, the UK. So, so when Australia are setting up the Sheffield Shield and when they're setting up the Big Bash with two teams in Melbourne and two teams in Sydney, that's because that's where everybody lives, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And of course, there, that although there's two in those two cities, as you say, in the other areas, it, it, it replicates perfectly the geography of the Sheffield Shield sites. Yeah. Now, in India, completely different. 1.3 billion people, you know, which is like. Th- well, three times or over three times the entire population of the continent of Europe. And you know, the reason it's different there is that, and why the IPL is, is unique. I mean, they've combined two religions. They've combined cricket, which is the first one, uh, with Bollywood, the second. Yeah. And nobody is ever getting anywhere near replicating that degree of success. Uh, it's, it's, out, it's out of sight uh, for people like us or the Australians, never mind South Africans or the West Indies. But, and we've uh, seen as well, Andy, even the IPL, they've extended that and, and increased the teams. Big Bash has tried to replicate the structure to some degree. And I think both, um, IPL less so, but Big Bash is go back three or four years. Everybody was talking about how that's such a vibrant competition. Everybody wanted to watch it. I, I see interest in that as, as been as waned a little bit because they've just extended it. And for me, the T20 or even the 100, the, the, the advantage of competitions like that is that they are... Wham, bam, you know the result very quickly, go home. And the competitions themselves only come over sort of two, three, four weeks. And you can see start to finish and see the narrative of a tournament from start to trophy presentation and stay tuned with it. The competitions now are going on so long. Even I, as a cricket badger who has followed the last two IPLs, I just lost interest in this IPL. Well, you're not alone. I'm not up to date with the TV ratings. I don't have access to them. But I have followed, as I'm sure you have, uh, commentary um, uh, about those ratings. Mm. And I gather even the IPL was disappointed this year. But um, as some wag on Twitter said, I think it was about just after the final of the IPL. He said, well, I'm pretty sure it's starting up again in three weeks' time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we know, don't we, that pre-COVID, the Australians had overcooked the big bash and that was going into reverse. Uh, I don't know what it's done since. But um, again, it comes back to consumer behaviour. Uh, doesn't it? And you know, there are certain things that people will follow a drumbeat for a long period of time, like the first-class game. Yep. Um, uh, worldwide, I mean, the the format that's winning with T20 is the is the short, sharp, punchy tournament. And we're seeing, even though the two biggest beasts have probably overdone it, uh, perhaps in the, in the last year or two, others, you know, the Bangladesh Premier League, apparently great success, as now is the Caribbean. Hmm. And 
uh, I think, as you're, you're aware, James, I mean, there are many people who are of, remain of the view that uh, 18 counties, again, isn't a problem if they're divisionalised. And with the English game has probably missed a massive opportunity by not divisionalising T20. You know, we could have had our own English Premier League. My name is Jacob and I sent the Badger a message. And now I'm on the podcast with this jingle. If you would like to get in touch with the Cricket Badger podcast, then tweet at cricket underscore badger. Let me ask the question. Um, David Cricket, and I'm sure that's not his surname. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that we should have had a T20 Blast Premier League instead of the 100. Based on the ECB executive and the independent, in inverted commas, board, and assuming broadcasters agree, how can that happen? Can that still happen? Can we still get back to that kind of structure? Or are too many egos and invest and people invested in the 100 and heels dug in for that ever to happen? Well, I think it, it won't be easy to get there now. Uh, I mean, the... I. I chaired a working party at ECB on domestic structure back in, I think it was 2016, and we made a very strong and unanimous recommendation to divisionalise T20 because the uh, we used to call the T20 the hokey-cokey. You know, we went from there to there to there to there every yeah. year, you may recall. It was going up in and out like an, a bellows. And um, we, we were certain that the way forward was to divisionalise it. There was... It would have been a, a an irresistible uh, concept for broadcasters and through them fans for that uh, that Premier League uh, with probably three sides going up and down. So you'd have had a real scrap for promotion and relegation as well. But it wasn't to be the current ECB leadership at the time. We now know why they didn't go with that, uh, because they had something else in mind around the urban franchises. That's fine. That was their, you know, that was their prerogative, and that's why we are now where we are. But could it ride again? Well, of course it could. It would need a the, the change in leadership at ECB to be uh, to be completed. And I think if, as I hope, that the new chair will be Richard Thompson from Surrey. I think it's probably exactly the sort of thing that he would be uh, very receptive to as his uh, as he was at the time back in 2016 he and uh, Richard Gould were great supporters of, of that direction of travel in, in terms of the the hierarchy ECB and counties and this isn't just cricket this happens probably in every walk of life but I, I always thought when I was in cricket actually working in cricket the your job was to try and take inherit your position make it as good as you possibly could can and then hand it on to the next person in that role in at least as good a position if not better than you you took it so that sport therefore if everybody does that sport the sport gets stronger but there's a temptation i think with the way cricket's structured now is for people to come into the chief exec's role at the ecb or or whatever position they're in and to try and make their mark and to boost their cv and say right i was only there for five years but we had such a massive success that is great if it works but if you are trying to put all your eggs into the basket of the hundred and the likes of us don't like that. It doesn't necessarily look so good. Sometimes maybe the best chief executive is one that just sits back and watches the cricket and lets it all just happen and carry on being successful. Well, I certainly agree that as uh, administrators, we should see ourselves as custodians of the game. And as you said, ultimately, the measure of your success is can you pass it on to your successor in a slightly better condition than when you inherited it? Uh, we always used to chuckle about that at Somerset because when Giles Clark handed over to me, we were about a quarter of the way through the rebuilding project, so the ground had been flattened. <laughs> so it wasn't. It wasn't going to be difficult for me to uh, to achieve that. 
because he knocked it all down. So unless you made um, the hole bigger, you were going to be successful. Absolutely. Um, but uh, we've seen a change, haven't we? And the ECB has now gone from chairman being unpaid and directors being unpaid. Now I read that the next chairman may be uh, paid a quarter of a million a year. And we've seen multi-million pound bonuses paid to senior executive directors at ECB. Well, of course, that that is going to produce a completely different mindset, um, Mm. because whilst we don't know what the performance conditions were for those bonuses, there will have been performance conditions and it will drive change. And that is going to be, that's a very corporate approach. It's one that I'm used to in, in my normal day jobs of working with businesses backed by private equity. But I mean, that is a complete sea change from the way in which cricket has hitherto been administered. And some of that will be good, some of it will be bad. And uh, there's no doubt, I think the devotion to the we're saying to the 100 is clearly driven by some very strong short-term forces to, again, achieve, well, we're not quite sure what, but to, to achieve probably growth, uh, bums on seats, TV ratings and ultimately TV value. So, I mean, that is a very, very big change that is going on through the game and one that is going to have some catastrophic consequences as far as county cricket is concerned. We can only hope and pray it doesn't have too many. I've written this down almost like an essay question. It almost needs the word discuss at the end of it. But should sport be all about money or about supporters? Because the one that I mean, I, I set up Oppose the 100 because the thing that was frustrating me, Andy, was that it was people like yourselves in, in, in closed behind closed doors making decisions mm. on the game. People like me and other supporters around the country who have, an in, have a stake in cricket because we love it, weren't being asked what our opinions were. And I think that carries on being the case. So should it all be about money or is there a heartbeat? Is there a soul to cricket that can't be ignored? Well, it's definitely the latter. I mean, you, you cannot in sport ignore the fans. If you do, your day of reckoning will come. And uh, again, it's a question that the current or and new incoming ECB administrators, I'm sure, will be asking themselves, which is that uh, how are we now sitting with the loyal fan base? Because uh, anybody who's got any experience of running a business or organisations knows that the most precious strength you have within within that uh, that that being is your loyal consumers, clients, users. And it's very easy to you, you, to get rid of them if you really if you really brass them off. It's with, difficult to get them back. With with Colin Graves, you know, from his um, cost cutter days, you know, if you were to stock a brand that wasn't selling and nobody liked, you would soon take it off your shelves, and you would listen to the your supporters in in that kind of context. And it's no different, is it? Really, you know, you you try you're trying to grow the game, you're trying to obviously make money because it's important, but you're also trying to give your stakeholders in terms of the fans and the members and the supporters that buy the tickets what they actually want you can't ignore well you can ignore fans consumers and clients but your business won't last very long if you do so that's cru- that's crucial the soul of the game i think that takes us back to what we were discussing earlier and it's the uh, the provenance the heritage the loyalty that goes between the fans and their beloved sports teams and yeah you can't ignore the money um, but I mean, we're not, as we used to say, uh, you know, we're not playing cricket just to make money, but don't try playing professional cricket without any these days, because, you know, you need it to develop and retain uh, your, your best playing talent. You need it to develop and retain your best management team. 
And also, of course, you needed to be able to provide the facilities that your fans, members, uh, these days uh, come to expect as the quality of sort of sports, stadia, leisure, uh, et cetera, are, in, are increased. So it's a balancing act. But undoubtedly, the key difference, one key difference, we haven't said it yet, between the franchises and the counties is the franchises exist to make money. Mm. That's what they're there for. And they also exist to effectively buy in talent rather than cultivate talent, don't they? Yeah, it, it's a very, uh, you know, they're of... Uh, um, they feed off. They feed off the game. I mean, they rent talent and they spit it out when they're finished with it. Whether it's injured or gone over the top, they just dump it. Um, uh, they have no interest uh, anywhere in developing that talent. That's a job that's left to the ta- those who occupy and manage the talent pathways uh, and and bring the players. You know, whether the boys or girls, bring them, you know, bring them through. I like many people. Uh, one of the reasons I oppose. The franchise model is that they're they're there to enrich a few people. They do nothing in terms of talent development. They do nothing in terms of stadium development. All that cost is borne by the counties uh, in England and Wales. Um, And they do nothing for their communities. When you look at what the 18 counties do between them, over the long haul, you know, they have a massive effect upon the communities that they serve. And you think, that, again, back to the one I know best, you know, Somerset would home, uh, host the uh, homecoming of the Royal Marines when they came back from Iraq and from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, we would uh, work with them to help support the injured and bereaved families. Uh, we hosted the Olympic torch as it was on its way through the UK. We hosted concerts. And also quietly behind the scenes, now continued by many of the foundations, do a lot of work through the medium of sport with the uh, underprivileged kids uh, and also those kids who are suffering from various disabilities. And, you know, that's a tremendous amount. And I know that football and rugby union do exactly the same. Well, show me a franchise that, that, that does that at the moment in the hundred. Let's go back to the uh, the, the questions um, from our uh, our listeners and viewers. Um, Peter Arthur says, um, "Will Andy ever put himself forward for a senior role in English cricket again?" No, been there, done that. Uh, I don't have time. I'm uh, I, I'm very very fortunate to be in the position of I'm chair of three companies at the moment. Um, that's what I've done as a day job for the last 20 odd years. Uh, so I have a, a major responsibility towards the welfare of those companies and my colleagues that are within them. I have a family that's that's widely dispersed now uh, across different countries. So and we have grandchildren. Uh, and so they're also, I think, now um, uh, demanding of our time also than they were, say, f- uh, five years or 10 years ago. Uh, so, no. So I'm but um, I've still got some. Very good friends within the game. So first and foremost, I see myself as a fan. But if I'm able to make a a contribution uh, as a uh, as a friend or an ex colleague to any of those who are going to have to do the heavy lifting to get English cricket back on its feet, uh, of course I'd be happy to help him. But it'll be informally and behind the scenes. Slightly off on a tangent, but it's connected. Mark Sands asks, is the end of outground cricket in sight? Just before you answer that, I actually always think that outgrounds could be the future of the championship. You know, you put put 3,000, 4,000 people, 2,000 people into Headingley. It's empty or it looks empty. You put 2,000 people into York or Bradford or somewhere like that. It's buzzing. Maybe that that could be the future of championship cricket and the saviour of outgrounds. But Mark's question is, are we seeing the end of outgrounds? 
Well, I, I tell you why it's under pressure, and that's uh, our friends' uh, health and safety. And uh, mm. I remember well that the Bath Festival has been around for very, very, uh, a very, very long time. But it did become uh, increasingly expensive to be able to stage cricket there because we were having to comply with an ever higher bar uh, set by the various authorities and, and regulations that we had to comply with. And it just became more and more expensive. So I think they remain under pressure. But some of them, Cheltenham probably being the best example, I guess Scarborough's another, you know, long may they continue. And if there are ways of, 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 compl- of meeting the costs that are involved, I think it's a great thing to do. But I know that Bath isn't the only one that has, uh, has struggled. Many of us have too. But what I would say, I, I was listening to Michael Vaughan recently. And I thought he made a really good point in relation to test cricket, the first class game. And he actually mentioned uh, Taunton within that. It may well fall to England to be the champion of test cricket over the next decade. If that's the case, he made the point, why not bring some of the the countries that struggled to host test cricket? New Zealand, perhaps being a great example, they can only afford, is it two tests a year at home? Mm. For financial reasons, it crucifies them beyond that. Well, bring them here. And uh, I'm sure we'd love to see, uh, fit them into the schedule and see the world's currently leading test nation playing in England. I'm probably scarred by that. I lost my job ultimately. I was made redundant at Yorkshire because Yorkshire lost so much money around hosting a neutral test match between Pakistan and Australia at Headingley. So the finances are important to that because there is an assumption that if you bring Pakistan to England, you'll automatically sell tickets. We need to get the pricing right and get the marketing right and actually attract the, the, the supporters in because you won't necessarily always get the English supporters going along and seeing, I don't know, Zimbabwe taking on Ireland or something like that. Yeah, but the, the uh, very good points, James. But we do have a very large South Asian, be that Bangladeshi, Indian, mm-hmm. or Pakistani living here in, in England and Wales. And it, perhaps if a ground the size of, of perhaps Taunton or New Road uh, yes. or Canterbury were used, you'd have a fantastic atmosphere with five, six, eight, ten thousand in. Incredible, and no, absolutely. Uh, of course, absolutely. And, and a cost footprint that would that, that would uh, reflect that. I mean, Leicester's a massively multicultural county, absolutely. you know, city, isn't it? You know, if you had Pakistan playing there, that would be incredible. It would be incredible. So, I mean, I thought that's a really good point that the uh, that Michael Vaughan made, and I really hope it's one that ECB have picked up because what better way of England, you know, championing Test cricket and ICC again are making comments that indicate we may have to do much of the heavy lifting on it over the next 10, 20 years. What a brilliant way of bringing other countries to, and they love coming to England, uh, as uh, where many local fans are. Um, what an opportunity, potentially. Um, Jason asks, um, what one piece of advice would you, Andy Nash, give Rob Key and his team? Mm. I think, you know, he's in a, a managerial role now. And I think the best quality that the best contemporary leaders have is the ability to listen and to reflect. And I think whilst, you know, I was incredibly fortunate my, in my career, both in sport and in business, to work with some great leaders. You know, one thinks of the type of, you know, uh, Graham Smith, Justin Langer, Ricky mm. Ponting uh, and others. They're three pretty They're good names. Yeah. They are. And, yeah. uh, but they mean, not all gung-ho and over the top. You'd be surprised at the amount of time they, they spend listening. And so 
as my dear old mum used to say, you've got two ears and one mouth and use them in proportion. <laughs> and I think the Robert Key clearly he's clearly a good guy. Um, he's clearly got vast experience in the game. And I think if he listens and reflects, that's going to help help him to help those around him on whom he's going to rely ultimately for success or failure. The last of the questions I'll ask from the listeners, if I've missed your question, I'm really sorry, but we had quite a few on this one. But uh, Christopher O'Brien, he says, what should be done by county cricket club chairs and by county members if and when the Strauss Review recommends less county cricket or fewer first-class counties? And who should do what beforehand to reduce the likelihood of that happening? That's a big question. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a big question. I think it's clearly one that's coming up. I've done an article for uh, County Cricket Matters, which will be out fairly shortly. And the, I did quite a lot of uh, listening behind that, spoke to a number of people across the game, as my network is, is, is still there. And not one actually felt that the, it would be possible to force a county out of business, which is a very interesting thought. That wasn't necessarily a unanimous view a year ago. So I think that threat assessment uh, uh, is probably receding. But, but, there's another very big but. We may see the 100 switch to 20 overs, but retain its eight franchises. That would be a massive existential threat, in my humble opinion, to the counties and the T20 blast. How do fans resist that? The, I think, 15 of the 18 counties, 16 of the 19, including MCC, are owned, owned by their members. They have the ability through their chairs to hold their boards to account and to ins insist that their point of views are taken on board. And I think it's just democracy at work. I mean, you've got to write to them, engage with them, ring them up, go chat to them at the ground, and ultimately enlist their support to ensure that your county uh, isn't going to get left behind. May not as I've just said, be forced out of business. But if you're only left with 10 championship games, a second 11 competition in the 50, and the T20 has been cut back as well, and you're not hosting uh, the 100, you're going to really, really struggle to have a sustainable You can make it very plan. hard for them, can't you? And, and counties like Somerset, Leicestershire, North Hants, Derbyshire, all of the usual suspects that we talk about when we talk about culling counties there, you know, Derbyshire, yeah. Leicestershire, Northamptonshire are always the first three on the on people's lists. And they rely massively on the T20 Blast revenue, don't they? Getting a full house at Wantage Road, for example, and getting that those ticket sales is yeah. big, isn't it? And the other, there's another very insidious trend there, which, too, which I'm sure the, your listeners will find it interesting. One is that uh, you have to be very, very careful that you don't uh, promote a situation whereby agents and the players form the view that you're never going to break through into the, the premier uh, white ball competitions internationally, mm. or indeed the England reckoning, unless you're playing for one of the, quotes big counties. I mean, that ha can have devastating consequences. Well, we have seen people already move from a, a so-called smaller county to a hundred county. Mm. They shouldn't be attached, but you can make it easy to say, well, if you come here, we'll get you a 100 contract, can't you? Well, we, I, uh, I have reason to – my understanding is it, it absolutely happens and, and players get lent on. Of course they do. It's a nudge and a wink, isn't it? Um, so that's another very insidious trend. It's been there for a while and has been exacerbated by the 100. 
Mm. Um, the other point that's a threat to the counties is this, which is there are some really, really gifted young players around, many of them. And we've seen many um, come through into people's consciousness this season, not just in white ball, but in red ball as well. But the very best white ball players, I'm not going to name any, I think it's invidious to do so, but, you know, various players will spring to mind, are almost now treating the game like a golf professional might and saying, well, actually, I can play. I'm good enough to play in the BPL, the CPL, the, uh, uh, maybe the IPL, the uh, BBL uh, and, and the Blast. And they can make really good money doing that. Um, the problem is it, uh, they're coming back to their counties, some of them, not until late August or September. And only then might they be available for championship or Red Bull cricket. See, and I, I don't blame the players for that. If I was a player, I'd want no. to maximise my income. I'd want to try and make the best for my family and for my future. It's it's the landscape that's actually allowing that to happen and not making it attractive enough to be in England, isn't it? I'm not blaming the players for one minute. But as you said, if you were their uh, elder brother or their dad, well, yeah, that's how you being. How could you dissuade them from doing that? They're looking at financial independence by the time they're thirty, probably. Um, it's a very attractive means to go, but. Well, you only need it one IPO contract to have financial independence by the time you're 22 if you're, if you're the right player. Well, Saranga went for a huge amount. There you go. But, I mean, you can see the threat to the Red Bull game and you can yeah. see the threat to some of the uh, some of the perceived smaller counties there. Mm. They could be losing some of their best players to the white ball around the globe. Um, and these are guys they've developed perhaps from the age of, of 8 or 10 and now they're, yeah. they're effectively lost to the game. Now, again, a fact that goes with that worth mentioning my understanding is the number of no objection certificates, you'll know what NOCs are, but listeners may not. This is the, the certificate that the national board has to issue before a player may go and play overseas. That number this year is up tenfold on history, historical levels, tenfold. That's the number of young players we're losing just in the men's game uh, going overseas. And other countries play hardball with that, don't they? India don't let their players go anywhere. I know at Yorkshire there was a couple of players that we I had the press releases written for and then the, um, their, their boards wouldn't actually release them and wouldn't sign the NOC. I'm going to ask you one last sort of big catch-all question, mm. really, before uh, I let you go, because we've been on for 50, nearly 59 minutes. It's time flies, isn't it? I could have been on for at least another hour. Will we see eight teams across seven cities in all formats of English cricket? Because the smaller the number of teams, the bigger the share of the pot, isn't it? There is an incentive for some of these counties that know that they're going to be okay to think, actually, if we shed eight counties, for sake of argument, that means our share is going to be bigger. I, I spoke to Sean Jarvis, the Leicestershire um, chief yeah. exec, recently on this podcast, and yeah. I offered to lay down in front of the bulldozers with him, uh, metaphorically speaking, if his club became vulnerable in this way as you say you can't necessarily legally force them out of business but you can make it very hard for them are we going to see a future where we just have eight notable teams in English cricket it's a great question uh, I sincerely hope not but the direction of travel at the moment is clearly to favoring an elite group of eight and the hosts of the hundred um, are clearly making uh, what Businessmen will call super profits out of that. They're taking far more out of it than the 10 counties who aren't involved. In fact, the 10 counties who aren't involved are getting their 1.3 million a year. But now, of course, they've come to realize that off that 1.3 million, we've got to subtract our lower memberships because people aren't turning up, lower gates. We're seeing gates falling in the T20 blast at some grounds. 
Um, and of course, as gates fall, catering revenues fall as well. So we haven't even touched on the financial crisis post-COVID that's in the game. Uh, there was, pre-COVID, over 200 million of debt across the 18 counties. That was a fact. I've no idea what it is today. I suspect it's higher. It must be higher. Um, that's got to be paid back at some stage. And yes, clearly some will be of a view, if eight of us can share that instead of 18, or eight of us can have the lion's share, you can see why, that you know, for, from their point of view, it may work. Let's hope for the sake of the broader English game and county cricket in general, that, that view does not prevail. But I don't think there's any room for complacency. Here, 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 here. And uh, well, hopefully in our lifetimes, we'll still see 18 counties. But I uh, I wouldn't want to put too much money on it right now, because as you say, the direction of travel seems to be heading away from that, doesn't it? Andy Nash, absolute pleasure. Kind of, our paths have crossed many times on Twitter, but first time I've come face to face with you. Very nice to meet you today. And thank you for being on the Cricket Badger podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you out there, all of your questions that came in and uh, for watching and for listening as well. We'll be back very soon, probably with something about England against New Zealand. And uh, we will see you again then. Sports Social Podcast Network.